And then after that, I heard him say that that song, he would sing, it is swell with my soul. And so when I sing it, I have to be very careful not to sing, it is swell. Next time you sing it, you'll be singing it that way too. By the way, it's fine if it's well or swell with your soul. There's no problem. That There's no doctrinal error in that. I also will say this. Zach did a wonderful job taking us through the book of James. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I think the most enjoyable part was the first two Sunday nights when the church next door decided it was a beat fest and the rest of us in the congregation could hear it. And all of us were looking around, but he kept on preaching. I thought, man, that is, that is good. Me, on the other hand, if I hear him start with it, I might just start doing something. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I have asked kindly that uh, we would turn the thump and bass down. Uh, that way the neighbors don't think we're the ones causing all the ruckus up here. But ultimately, they can watch our videos and see that we don't do that. So anyway, I, many of you came to me over the last three weeks or so and asked, what was that sound? And I said, I don't know. I knew exactly. After the first night, Jason had gone out on security, and he, I went out there and asked him. He went out there and found out. He goes, they're having some kind of party over there, Pastor. So uh, the answer is, we'll let them be their church, and we'll do it. Take your Bibles tonight, turn to Galatians chapter number one, or actually chapter two is where we'll read. We're going to cover two chapters in Galatians tonight. We're going to study Christian liberty. I hope by the end of this study, four Sunday nights from now, we will understand what it means to have Christian liberty and what that means. A lot of people today will tell you that Christian liberty means I can do whatever I want. That is Christian license, and it's nowhere found in the Bible. Christian liberty, as we're going to study, is actually you and I being free from sin, but living a life disciplined by the gospel and by the truth. And that's what Paul writes the book of Galatians about. I was going back through <clears throat> several years ago, in fact, when uh, Edward and Dana were in Jersey, uh, Dana had gone through and done me a very kind service and taken all of my messages prior to 2020 and put them into like a repository, a catalog, a, a spreadsheet. So right now I can go back and tell you which books of the Bible I've preached through. I have preached all the way through Romans. I've preached all the way through Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and First and Second Timothy. I've preached through most of, but not in a series, First and Second Thessalonians. I've preached through Titus. I'm going to be preaching through Hebrews here in a couple Sunday mornings. We'll start through the book of Hebrews. Uh, and I've preached through James. I've preached through First and Second Peter. But I've never preached all the way through Galatians. And so here tonight, we're going to begin a study of a book that I love dearly, but I've never actually preached all the way through. So when we get done with this, it'll be a first for you, just like it'll be a first for me getting through this book together. Let's read in Galatians chapter 2, and begin reading in verse number 19. For I, Paul's writing here, through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, that means in this temporal body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Praise God, we don't have to live by the law because we're saved by grace. And that is the heart of the Christian liberty that we're going to study. Father, help us tonight as we now come and study in detail this little letter to a group of churches in a region called Galatia. Plus, I pray the efforts in this series. May they not be of my own power and my own strength, but rather, Lord, may we rightly divide the word of truth. May we understand what the scripture saith. May we understand it and use it as well. Bless all that is said and all that is done in this message and this sermon tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. This letter to the Galatian believers presents the truth that God's grace grants us liberty in this life. That's a wonderful thing, especially knowing in these first two chapters the opposition and who was, it seems, at the heart of that opposition to the liberty we have in Christ. In this letter, Paul argues liberty is first personal. That's chapters 1 and 2. 
Second, it is principled. That's chapters 3 and 4. And third, it is practical. That's chapters 5 and 6. So how do we live out this liberty? Well, we're going to find the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 is at the heart of how we live a life of freedom or liberty in Christ. But there's a few questions before we start or dive into a deep study of a book that will help us set the table for all that we're going to study. The first question is, where is Galatia? We've got some maps on this. Who can find Turkey? It's up there. That's a good answer. Right. It is on this map, but it is specifically in the Bible called Asia Minor, and it's right here. It's in that region. It's in that area. That's Asia Minor, and Galatia is a part of that. In the next area, who can tell me where Galatia is in Asia Minor? Right there, again. It's all right there. All you got to do is look. Like I pay this guy. Meeting on the front row at church. Daniel, we need to make him a back row Baptist. <laughs> well, it's in that little lake area. Let's see the next map there. It's, it's generally in this blotched spot. That's essentially where Galatia is. It's on the peninsula of Asia Minor. It's a crossroads between Europe and Asia. Modern-day Turkey occupies this territory. So the next question we have to ask is, who made up the Galatian churches? If we read in verse 1, Paul says this, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me unto, notice, the churches of Galatia. This letter is the only one that was not directed to one single church, but a conclave or an enclave of churches in a particular region. So what churches made them up? And the answer is Derby, Lystra, places like that that were in Asia Minor that you can find in the travels of the Apostle Paul. In verse number two, Paul tells us that this letter was intended for a group of believers. Boy, that's helpful for us. In other words, this is not just one church's problem. We as a body of believers can learn something from this letter as we approach it this evening. The issue of Christian liberty, it seems, was affecting multiple churches in the whole region. The next question we must ask is, why did Paul write this letter? Well, Paul wrote this letter to counter false teachers who were undermining the central Christian doctrine of justification by faith and faith alone. Ignoring the express decree that was given to him and to them in the churches, in Acts chapters 15, verses 23 through 29, these false teachers spread a harmful doctrine and teaching that Gentiles must first become Jewish proselytes and then submit to the Mosaic law before they could become true Christians at all. So it brings us to the last question to set the table for our discussion. What does liberty mean? It's Sunday night, and we try to reserve Sunday night as a time of edification. It's not Sunday school hour, but it's more like a Sunday school hour. So I ask this question, and I will leave it open for a few responses. What is Christian liberty if you dare respond tonight? The pastor says with a smile. Freedom to do the right thing. Freedom to do the right thing. That's a wonderful Christian liberty. Amen. Freedom to do the right thing. Ethan? Freedom to choose that which is right or wrong, right? We can discern. We can choose life, if you will, as Moses encouraged the Israelites to do. Very good. Anybody else want to offer an idea of what Christian liberty is? Freedom to believe. That's correct. In other words, before we were saved, we were slaves to sin, Paul told us in Romans chapter 6 and 7. But now because we're saved, and by the way, Romans 6 and 7 are wonderful companions to this letter of Galatians. It's a wonderful uh, passage to read in conjunction with reading these six chapters because you understand Paul's initial argument to the Romans. Look, before you're saved, you have no right to choose. You have no thing to believe in except for the lies of the devil. But when you get saved, oh, liberty opens up to you. There's so many more things that you can now do for the cause of Christ. Christian liberty, I could say, is found in the Bible in several concepts. For example, liberty for the Christian can mean that he or she has been freed from the penalty of sin by faith in Jesus Christ. I'm free, I'm free, thank God I'm free at last. In other words, I'm free from the penalty of sin. Why? Because Christ died for my sins. Yeah, right. I've asked for that forgiveness. 
Christian liberty can refer to being free from the power of sin in one's life by daily faith in Jesus Christ. Some people might say, I got victory over this sin. And the answer is, you finally have exercised true Christian liberty to live as Christ would have you live, as opposed to living in your flesh. You're free. You're at liberty. In addition, Christian liberty can mean that Christians are free from the Jewish law of Moses. And that the law only exposes sin in one's life, but cannot forgive them. A final aspect, I think, broadly for Christian liberty is that it can mean that Christians are free in respect to such activity that it is not expressly forbidden in the Bible. In other words, you and I have ways in which we can exercise our Christian liberty differing from each other when it doesn't deal with doctrine. And that's the part that so many focus on. They make that the primary element of Christian liberty, and instead of being in liberty, they live in license. And they suppose that whatever they do is okay because it's their Christian liberty, and nothing could be further from the truth. We'll see that when we get to the practical end of Christian liberty in chapters 5 and 6. So for tonight's sermon, I want to bring our attention back to the grace of God. The grace of God's saving gospel ultimately will illuminate the truth of personal liberty. And so we find that personal liberty, as we note in our, our outline or in the title of our message, personal liberty in chapters 1 and 2 and the gospel light. Where the gospel light shines in, in its simplest form, by grace through faith, when that shines in, you and I are finally free. And that's what Paul's going to argue in these first two chapters for us. The grace of God's saving gospel illuminates the truth of personal liberty that never existed before salvation. There was no light to the darkness, but now there is. And that's what Paul's going to dive into and deal with in these first two chapters. So we dive also into the study on personal liberty through Paul's initial declaration of grace in your outline. Back with me in chapter 1, we're going to walk through each of these chapters, and predominantly each of the verses, though I'm not going to go deep into all of the original language meaning of a Greek word or the koine on that. We're going to look generally, though, at the construct of Paul's argument in presenting Christian liberty, and particularly tonight, personal liberty. In verses 1 through 5, we find Paul declares grace. He makes a simple declaration of the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. Paul opens Galatians by declaring grace to us. It is by grace that we are saved, but it is also through grace that we are set free in this life. We don't need to live by the rituals of religion. We can live fully in the relationship with Jesus Christ. Grace and liberty are letter A, declared authoritatively. When we start the letter, Paul starts by saying very emphatically, with all authority, Paul, an apostle. Now let's pause there as we look into the Word of God. And I hope you have your Bibles, because we're going to be looking at the Bible a lot, not at me a lot. In other words, you're going to see what the Bible says, and we're going to understand it together. The, the parentheses that we find at the in verse number 1, Paul is making some add-on comments, but it doesn't change the simple declaration, and that is, I'm an apostle. Look, if you're going to declare something, you better do so authoritatively. Parents, you understand there's rules. If you say to your kids, hey, I'd really like for you to do that. I think it might be a wonderful thing if you get out there and sweep the driveway. Do you think Johnny's going to run right out and sweep the Well, if you trained him well, they might do that. But if you say, hey, go out and sweep the driveway, and you just declare it authoritatively, you could also add, maybe in the vein of Paul here, Kyle, the father and dad of this house, says, Drew, go sweep the driveway. You know what Drew's going to do? Go sweep the driveway. I hope. I think. Probably not. He will. Because he understands the authority behind it. Paul says he's an apostle. He's not just any apostle, according to verse number one. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, not of men, neither by men. In other words, I wasn't established. Now, who is he taking a direct shot at? We're going to see all this as it plays out in chapter two. This letter is the only one of the New Testament letters that's written directly in the face of another apostle. And we have to be careful as we approach Galatians. He's not thumbing his nose at Peter, but he knows Peter is wrong. Yeah. Sometimes we know that our brothers and sisters in Christ are wrong, 
And the worst thing we can do is bury our head and ignore it. Peter was part of that group that chose Matthias to be the next apostle. Paul starts this letter sending a warning shot across the bow. Even though he's dealing with liberty, he is dealing with Peter and not Peter in the sense of teaching false doctrine, but people who were running off of Peter's coattails and teaching false doctrine in the church. And Peter, as we'll find out tonight, was ultimately afraid of confronting those Judaizers in the church. And the Judaizers were actually corrupting a wonderful man of God, Peter. We can read later in 2 Peter where Peter himself came to an understanding of the weakness of the moment that Paul is here confronting. Never take the authority of man as gospel truth. Take the word of God as gospel truth. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. What Paul says is he says, I'm an apostle. Not by men, Pete. (laughs) Neither by man, Pete. But by Jesus Christ, by the way, just like you are, Peter. That's going to be the churches are the ones that are receiving the letters. But the audience is Peter himself because Paul loved Peter. We're going to see that tonight. And I believe Peter loved Paul. But there was a disagreement on the old Judaism and its place still within Christianity. He said, well, we don't have that problem today. Oh, we still have rituals and legalism all over churches today. And so this letter is very informative for us. He goes on and says, I'm of God and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Verse 2, and all brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia. Paul says he's an apostle, not of men. He isn't a witness of what a man did and delivered, but God, what God did and what Jesus Christ delivered. This is a veiled warning shot across the bow, as I mentioned, of what he's going to confront and deal with later. Paul is effectively saying, I have the same authority to declare declare this gospel light to the Roman world as Peter did to the Jewish world. Peter had sadly become the chief perpetrator of duplicitous behavior in the church. Paul is saying, no, I have the right apostolic authority to declare God's grace to you and the liberty that comes with that. By the way, that's important for us because unless you're a Jew here tonight, you and I are in the Gentile world. Paul is effectively saying, I have the right apostolic authority to declare God's grace to you because God chose me to be an apostle. Paul's authority in declaring grace and the personal liberty produced by it hung on the reality of all the lives that had been changed from that message. Imagine Paul having to use credentials with these churches, many of which he planted himself. By the way, sometimes there's enough undertow of Gossip and tearing down of leadership that sometimes even a pastor has to say, hey, listen, here's my bona fides, if you will. Here's my bona fides. If you want to see who I am, here's what I've done. And that's what Paul's going to do as well. These first two verses are important. They're not just introductory to get us into what he wants to talk about. They are what he wants to talk about. In verse number two, he says, all the brethren which are with me. We don't need any more authority than God's word, but it does help. To have godly witnesses to the power of grace and freedom and the ultimate liberty that it brings. And he says in verse 2, hey, all the brethren that are traveling with me, all the brethren that are here while I'm writing this letter to you, they all agree with this. So just relax, Church of Galatia, because of the confusion that's been brought into your midst. Letter B in verses 3 through 5 is not just declared authoritatively, it's declared authentically. Grace be to you in peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, look, your Christian living in liberty by grace is the proof. It's the authenticity. He says, grace be to you in peace. Paul wanted them to be at rest in the grace and peace that comes from knowing God through Jesus Christ. Liberty is ours because of the redemptive offering Christ made on Calvary, we know. The real test of salvation, the test of your own liberty, is have you been delivered from this present evil world? That's the point of verse number four. How do you know if you're free? 
because you don't have to do what it's doing anymore. Sadly, far too many Christians think that liberty means they can live like the world. And Paul is effectively saying, no, you've been freed from it. Why would you go back to it? Personal liberty means you've been freed from that old world. You have the liberty to no longer live like it. Personal liberty is authentic. It's genuine. It's real. The Israelites complained in the wilderness, but when confronted with the truth of going back to Egypt, none of them ever did. It's easy to complain. Our flesh loves to complain. It's a product of this present evil world. If we've been delivered from that, we will not fall back into the trap of those old Israelites. You and I have the same liberty as them to obey without the complaining. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. For when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and, unto, uh, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have been free. Why live in that present, that old present evil world? The gospel declares grace and liberty with authority and authenticity through Jesus Christ. It is therefore inescapable that we should glorify him starting now and forevermore, according to verse number five. Paul moves next to address the departure from grace. That's found in verses six through twelve. amazing when Paul writes a word like this. He says, I marvel. Now, if he wrote it in saying, I marvel at what God is doing, that would be the right use of it. That would be the appropriate use of it. But he is essentially saying, man, I am shocked at what's going on in that church. That's what he says. I wonder if the Apostle Paul floated down from heaven and decided to write a letter to the Bluegrassians. Right, that would be the region of bluegrass, our central Kentucky area. And he wrote a letter to the bluegrassians. What would he write of our church? Would he start by saying, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Yeah. Who lied to you and why did you believe it? Yeah. Essentially what he's driving home to. So he's talking in verses 6 through 12 about the departure from grace. Look, we have the personal liberty when grace is declared to us to receive it. But that liberty is from sin, not to go back to it. And so we find that when we go back to that old life, we're not living anymore in liberty. We're living in license and licentiousness. We're living in a carnal way. We're living in a way that doesn't please God. It is truly amazing how quickly we forget God's amazing grace and the gospel's liberating effect. Yet it can be understood by each of us tonight. The devil, the world, and our flesh are all working to corrupt or confuse the freedom that we have in Christ. So don't listen tonight and hear me chiding you or scolding you. Understand this evening, I'm a sinner saved by the same grace you are, and I understand the struggle is real. But we still need to make free choices, choices in liberty that please God rather than please ourselves. Right. By the way, the idea of attacking liberty is seen everywhere in our modern-day America. It's why America's decline is so instructive for us and why we should work so hard to stop her decay. America as a nation was founded in and upon the concept of liberty. By the way, your new life in Jesus Christ is founded upon God's grace, which provides you personal liberty. How then does our faith depart from God's wondrous grace? The answer is letter A, found in heresy. It is found in heresy. 6, 7, 8, and 9, we see the heretical doctrine that had permeated, had penetrated into this church. Verse 7, which is not another gospel. He said, look, who's lied to you? I am shocked at how quickly you've gone after another gospel. But he says, it's not another gospel because there isn't another gospel. There's only one. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, amazingly, what he says next, or an angel from heaven 
preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Again, this is the second shot across the bow to Apostle Peter, who is a friend, a colleague, and a loved one in the faith. He is effectively saying to Peter, Pete, listen up. Do not hang out with these Judaizers anymore. They are lying to you as well. It doesn't matter if an angel dropped from heaven and preached another gospel. Do not believe it because it's not what Jesus taught. That's what Paul says. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, then that ye have received, let him be accursed. The heresy is specifically found at the end of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7. Another gospel which is not another. Whomever was peddling this other gospel in their churches, it was not, by the way, Peter directly. It's that they had latched on to the fact that Peter struggled with being freed from Judaism. But whoever was peddling this other gospel was purposefully and willfully perverting. That word means changing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the simplicity of the gospel. They were adding the law. They were adding tradition. They were adding obstacles to simple faith in Jesus Christ. The message sounded similar to James's message of faith without works is dead, but they were imposing the works before grace as opposed to applying the works after grace. There is no possible way that those who are dead in their trespasses and sins can live a life as if they are alive. That's essentially what Paul is saying. Look, there is no other gospel. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. The gospel teaches us that. The gospel, that is, Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again for your justification. Your faith in that is what brings salvation, not your cleaning up your outside and looking good. Not following some rituals given in a religion. I always wonder this, by the way. What work? would work to bring salvation. How would you ever know you've done enough? Yeah. <laughs> How would you ever know you satisfied God and you just made that last measure or did that other sin on the way to delivering that last good work, that other sin say, oh, now you got to pile more you got to do. Yeah. The answer, of course, is none. Working out our salvation comes after salvation. After it has been received full and free by God's grace. That is the gospel light that Paul is driving home here that brings individual personal liberty to us. Paul says, I don't care if an angel from heaven shows up and preaches another gospel. Let him be accursed. In fact, there are a host of fallen angels that stand in pulpits and preach false messages every single Sunday. What Paul is saying here happens, not just in America, but all across the globe. By the way, they are accursed. Be careful listening to them. Once heresy is found, it must be let her be met with honesty in verses 10, 11, and 12. For do I now persuade men or God? Paul asks. That's a good rhetorical question. You best not answer that in Paul's presence. I'll tell you who I'm trying to serve. It's God. Buddy, I'm not trying to make you happy. I often wonder what it was like listening to Paul's preaching. That poor kid in the book of Acts that fell out the window, right? Because he preached long, the Bible says. Every Baptist preacher loves that passage of Scripture because it means they can preach for a long time. Look, Paul was not there to persuade men. Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. In other words, I'd be a servant of man. I'm just making you happy. I'm heaping to myself teachers having itching ears, or they were. But I certify, I guarantee you, for, uh, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul, in honesty, he, we find in verse 10, was honest about his goal in gospel preaching. What was his goal? To please God. Look, I've got nothing in this. The Judaizers are trying to please themselves because it would create a subservient group. That had to make the pastors, the priests, the bishops happy. <coughs> Excuse me. Verses 11 and 12, we find the honesty that he meets it with was the honesty.
honesty of the genesis of the gospel's provision. The word certify in verse number 11 means to make known plainly. plainly. I am making known plainly to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. I didn't make this stuff up. Paul says, I will plainly tell you that this message was not for me or for man. It was revealed directly to me by Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would have such honesty when we find heretical doctrine or teachings that are contrary to the word of God. Having given a clear, given a declaration of grace, a describing of what it looks like to depart from the grace. In verse number 13, Paul pivots one more time in this first chapter to a demonstration of grace. <clears throat> Beginning in verse number 13, we find the demonstration of grace is built upon his own testimony. Could you, by the way, write a chapter or verses in the book that would state the truth of grace upon your own testimony? By how your life has changed? It's pretty bold, isn't it? I mean, again, this is spirit-inspired. It's spirit-led. It's, it's God moving upon a man to write it. But it's his testimony that he's giving. He says, look, I'm going to use myself as a demonstration of grace. Wow. Could your life fit this mold? Paul, in these verses, sets himself forward as a demonstration of what grace can do in the life of one who receives it. The liberty that it brings. <laughs> Personal liberty is best explained through our own lived experience of grace and the effective change that comes upon us. We see first letter A, Paul's conversion. Look in verse number 13. <clears throat> Long Sunday is getting to my throat, so hopefully I'll make it to the end. Got enough water for me. In verse number 13, we find the Bible says this, For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion. Again, he's noting what kind of religion it is. It's the Jews' religion, not God's. How that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. That word, that phrase, wasted it, literally means he ravaged it. Utter destruction. He wreaked havoc, the Bible says, in the book of Acts. And profited or advanced myself in the Jews' religion above many my equals in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Man, that's a good statement if you're a baby Christian. If you're wanting to grow in your faith, it is fine to have good mentors, but it is better to just confer with this book. Find a friend in the faith that will point you to the right places to grow your faith in this book. And you will have as much liberty as you'll ever need to overcome anything in your life. Amen. We find in his conversion, he finishes by saying this in verse 17. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. So we find in Paul's conversion, first in verses 13 and 14, his fervency that was formed in his original religious roots. He is making an argument here. Listen, if this teaching of the law being observed is necessary for salvation, if religion and rituals and rules and regulations is necessary to be saved, man, I had it in spades. I had the corner on the market. And Paul said, none of that was good. It wasn't until the grace of God appeared to me. When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me. We know that passage in Acts chapter 9 where he was literally knocked off his high horse on the way to Damascus. Paul gives his conversion. He first notes his fervency that was formed by his religious roots. By the way, those religious roots gave him both the ability and latitude to speak on this subject that we're dealing with in Galatians. No other person could present truth as it was being presented here. Everyone that would read it would go to these Judaizers and say, wasn't he a Hebrew of the Hebrews? Wasn't he a Pharisee of the Pharisees? 
I mean, wasn't he a high flyer and a quick riser within the ranks of the Pharisees in the school of Gamaliel? And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. Who are you? <laughs> I'm just somebody trying to control your life. Oh, okay, well, get out of here. Your testimony, by the way, has a powerful influence on others. Right. Never diminish your salvation testimony. That's what Paul's doing here. He's elevating not him, but the grace of God and the liberty it brought in his own life. In verses 15, 16, and 17, <clears throat> we find his faith is founded upon, squarely upon, Jesus Christ. The fervency did nothing to help him. There's a lot of militant, fundamentalist Islamists. They're no closer to heaven than the atheist scientists at Harvard. And nothing in this life gets us closer to God except for the grace of God. That introduces the relationship. Fervency means nothing, but his faith meant everything. Faith in the wrong object work, works, in this case for Galatians, led him, Paul, to violently persecute the church. He had a lot of faith in his religion. Right. You can ask the Jerusalem church, and we'll see when we get to chapter 2, that James actually has to speak on his behalf when he came to Jerusalem. Faith in Jesus Christ alone led Paul to convert to a vast number of Galatians among other cities and regions. It was not his fervency, it was his faith. So Paul points to his conversion. Your faith in Christ, your conversion from worldly, fleshly, devilish living is the demonstration of grace that the world needs to see. And it is the testimony you can rely on. It's the only thing you can rely on. How God's word has changed you. His conversion produced letter B, his conduct. Verses 18 through 24 read this way. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Sometimes, by the way, when we read the book of Acts, we think he went like the next week. Three years. This is going to seem insane because we've aged in dog years during COVID. But three years ago, we had never heard the word COVID. Oh, there was life before it? Yes, three years. And Paul effectively says here, hey, after three years, where? <clears throat> In Arabia and in Damascus, learning and at the feet of those who knew the gospel, learning literally and directly from Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, <clears throat> I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. That's why I say he doesn't, there's no love lost between he and Peter. There, there's no animosity, I should say. Paul is just adamantly defending grace and grace alone as our means of salvation. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God, I lie not. Afterwards, after that council meeting in Acts chapter 15, I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and was unknown by faith unto the churches of Judea which were in Christ. In other words, I didn't go back for a long time. They had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me. We find in Paul's conduct as a demonstration of grace and the personal liberty that it brings. First, it comes in fellowship. Paul does not hate Peter. He loves him. He lived with him for two weeks. We'll find here in chapter 2 in just a few moments that their relationship is a decision point. In the midst of disagreement between each other. But for Paul's part, he was doing everything he could to be gracious. And early on, so was Peter. In Acts chapter 15. By the way, that is commendable. Far too often in fundamentalism and in autonomous New Testament Baptist churches like ourselves, we just get caught in mudslinging. We don't find that with Peter and Paul. What we find is corrective teaching from Paul so that the Gentiles would not have to labor over whether they were saved or not. Paul conducted himself graciously with James, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, we read in this text. By the way, that note is vital. If the pastor of the church that had been ravaged by the persecutor, Paul, could forgive him and embrace this man because of the change that grace had brought in his life, man, that spoke volumes, wouldn't it? I mean, you would come to me if there was someone that was killing off or hailing and taking men as this church. 
to jail. If he later got saved and became a member here, some of you might say, Pastor, you've lost your living mind. Why did you let him in the church? And I would say he got saved. He truly converted. Not only in his word, his conversation, but also in his conduct. You see, he had the liberty to live a life now that was free from guilt and shame. It doesn't erase the past. It just means the past is forgiven. That's an important point for us to understand. His conduct was in fellowship with those in the early church, but it was also through faithfulness. He was faithful to his calling and ministry in verses 20, 20 through 22. Paul left home and family to faithfully go and do whatever God desired for him to do. That's a noble thing. Would you do that? Faithfulness says, yes, I will go, I will do, I will say what God calls me to do. Say where he wants me to be. In verses 23 and 24, we find the faithfulness through his change in mission. It's not just his calling and his ministry, but the actual change in his mission statement and where he was placed. Paul was great at persecuting the church, but you know what he was even better at? Preaching Christ. Stop and think about that. As good as he was at persecuting the church, he was better at preaching Christ. That's the sign that liberty has come. He had a freedom to preach Christ to others. He didn't live in guilt of his old past. His conduct demonstrated the total regeneration that had taken place in him at salvation. Paul could have tiptoed around and constantly apologized when he was there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 for persecuting the church. But a better demonstration of grace was for Paul to conduct himself in such a way that he honored God and glorified him in all that he could do. That's much better. The devil wants you to live in guilt. But if you have been forgiven, friends, you've been forgiven of everything. Amen. That's the liberty we have. It's a demonstration of grace. Well, personal liberty comes by way of the gospel's life. We declare grace, avoiding departing from grace, always trying to demonstrate grace, and are ready for it for a defense of grace. That's all of chapter 2. Can we even deal with 21 verses in 10 minutes? Sure. We can do it. I told Stuart if I went an hour and a half, he'd stand up and walk out. I'm only at 40. I said, well, you know what I mean? We're in trouble. The issue that had arisen in Galatia was nothing new. When we go about defending our salvation, we often think that there's never been this kind of an attack against our faith. Old King Solomon told us there is nothing new under the sun. It was the same old story. How important, the Jews said, is the law of Moses? How is this new dispensation changing everything we, once, we Jews once held dear? It's an interesting study, and we didn't take the time in the introductory, and we won't now, but the northern regions of Galatia, the northern part of Turkey there, closer to the Caspian and Black Sea, that region of Galatia would not have struggled with this. They were Gauls. That's where they got the name. Galatia. Galatia. It was a province of Rome. They were Gauls from France who had moved over during the first occupations of France and Britannia by the Roman Empire. They had been displaced and saw an opportunity to trade. That's why to even to this day, Turkey is part of Europe. Why? Because there are many of Euro descent. Galatia in the northern region is the Gauls who came there. Now, the southern part of Galatia was a lot of dispersed Jews of the diaspora, so he's likely writing this letter to them, but it applies to all the churches that were planted in that region. Paul's argument still holds today. There is nothing a person can do to earn salvation. So the trappings of requirements that he's going to deal with here in chapter 2, regulations and rules, is foolish for both leadership and laymanship to begin to think those rituals are a way to salvation is anti-God and against his word. Paul first cites a previous settled controversy in chapter 2. I love verse 1. Fourteen years after I went up again to Jerusalem. Those were probably blessed years for the Apostle Paul because he didn't have to deal with a 
lot of the Jewish trappings and the Jewish traditions. Three years after he gets saved, he goes up and is sent out. Fourteen years later is actually when this big controversy arises. You believers who are Gentiles in Antioch, you must be circumcised so you demonstrate that you're part of the chosen people of God. What are you talking about, Paul and Barnabas came to say to the church at Jerusalem? This is the 14th year. This is what happened here historically. He says, I took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preached unto the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation. Now, who is that? Stop and think for a moment. Who would that be? Peter. James. John. These were the pillars. He's getting ready to call them. They seem to be pillars of the church. That's kind of a backhanded move to Paul. Stop making much of yourself. Let God make something much of you, but you just keep doing your job. They seem to be pillars of the church. And he's not saying it in a caustic, ironic, or sarcastic way. He's saying it in a way that they would be awakened to. Oh, yeah, we are supposed to be pillars of the church. We are acting pretty dumb. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. That was at that particular time in Acts chapter 15. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in who came in privately or privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage or bondage again. I love verse 5. To whom we gave place by subjection? No, not for an hour. This debate here in this controversy was held in Acts 15, but it doesn't seem that it was settled then in totality. The devil always likes to take our minor disagreements within a church and make them much larger than they need to be. In verses 1 through 5, we understand the debating of the circumcision was done both privately and publicly in Acts 15. Paul was not having any more debates about religious rituals being necessary for salvation. Let me paraphrase verse 5 for you. We are not submitting to one more second of your foolishness. That's what verse 5 means. Did we suffer them? Not for an hour. That word hour just means not even for a space of time. Not even for a moment. No, we didn't think about it at all. We settled that. God, by revelation, had told us, and Peter agreed. James agreed. We settled it then, and you all are just dredging up old things to make a new controversy out of something that's settled. In verses 6 through 10, we find... They discern the central truth. Keep reading, but of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it makes no matter to me. God accepteth no man's perfect. God doesn't care. For they who seem to be somewhat in conference or in league added nothing to me. I didn't need them. That's not Paul being, again, cavalier or dismissive. He's simply saying, I only need Jesus. I don't need people's accolades and a praise. Oh, this is the great apostle Paul. He only cared about getting to heaven, as we talked about this morning. But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter, for he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of circumcision, the same was mighty in me towards the Gentiles. All he's saying there is, hey, the same God that blessed Peter to reach the Jews is the same God that blessed me to reach the Gentiles. It's not that hard to figure this out. And when James, Cephas, Cephas is... Peter, and John, here it is, here's that phrase, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen. Wouldn't it be nice to know what the Jews thought of us? <laughs> the heathen! The heathen's wrong. Praise the Lord, we're saved out of that heathen. They under the circumcision. By the way, who got the better deal on that? We don't know. God had called them each to their specific ministries. Be careful, because we might read this and say, well, Paul got the better deal. He got the whole world. They just got the Jews. Listen, the Jews are God's chosen people. He loves them. For them to be established and settled is a very important thing. So it's not like one is, the better, or, is better or worse. All Paul is, is addressing or more talking about here is, look, they had the liberty to go and do what they wanted, and I had the liberty to go and do what I wanted. God was leading us in both those ways. We had the freedom to do it. It was our personal liberty. But we did not need to get caught back up in the law or the trappings of it. 
verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Oh, here's the trouble. After they discerned the central truth that God is in control, we find the third element of the controversy is that there was doctrine that they had needed to be a doctrine with conviction. Verses 11 through 14, we read in verse 12, For before that certain came from James, or that letter, he did eat with the Gentiles, but when we were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Peter cared what people thought about him. It's a dangerous place to be, Christian. You should only care what God thinks about you. Amen. The other Jews disassembled likewise with him. In other words, they followed his lead. Insomuch that Barnabas, Barnabas, faithful Barnabas, was carried away with their dissimulation. The word dissimulation there just means their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter, before them all, uh -oh, the private conversations have ended and the public debate is back on. And I can promise you the Apostle Paul from the school of Gamaliel was very good at public debate. If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? By the way, he is going back to Acts chapter 10 where the vision came to Peter at Cornelius' house that all things were now clean. In other words, you can live like a Gentile. It's okay. Grace allows that. It's the liberty that comes in salvation. And so Paul effectively says, if that was true, why are you doing this? Yeah. Why are you pivoting back to this? Poor Peter. I'm glad that this is recorded because it gives me hope. <laughs> I don't mean to be duplicitous. Sometimes I can be. I hope never to be doctrinally incorrect. But we find ourselves sometimes in conversations and in situations that might be tenuous or tough for us to express our Christian values. And we don't always say or do the right thing, just like Peter in this situation. So always be careful when you're ready to beat someone up in the Bible. Because usually you're looking into a mirror and you're looking at yourself. Paul addresses Peter's two-faced behavior with doctrinal conviction of his own. Peter said one thing with the Jews and lived another with the Gentiles. The crazy part was the way Peter was living was right. His words were what was wrong. That's an amazing thing. Paul did the right thing. He followed the right pattern. In Acts 15, he approached John, Peter, and James personally and directly. He then had agreement with them. It seems Paul had private conversations in the context of this Galatian controversy in verse number 11 with Peter. Once Peter made public his decision to side with the Judaizers, those who were confusing the gospel, Paul had to make a defense of the gospel, and he does so. Even though it's an old controversy, they all knew so well. Once Paul made the decision, discussion public, he didn't attack Peter. Instead, he reminded everyone foremost, foremost himself the purpose, letter B, of the crucifixion. That's what verses 15 through 21 tell us. Paul's defense in particular to Peter is riveting. I mean, put yourself in the place. Two great apostles. These men wrote most of the New Testament letters. They were pillars. Their names are literally on the foundation of the New Jerusalem, the Bible says. Yeah. And they can argue. You know what? Sometimes we as Christians might disagree too. Put yourself in that place. Effectively, Paul says here, hey, fisherman Peter, you and I are the chosen ones. Not these filthy sinners, the Gentiles. Yet we know that man is not justified by the works of law, but by faith in Jesus Christ in verses 15 and following. Can you imagine Peter sitting with and siding with the legalistic Judaizers and hearing Paul, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Pharisee of the Pharisees, say that to him? Hey, Peter, I was much better at that game than you are. Peter was a commonplace fisherman. He knew the law, but he did not know it like Paul. We find the purpose of Paul pointing us to the crucifixion in these verses first brings the clarity that is needed in verses 15 through 18. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. 
For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? In other words, if I sin after my salvation, is Christ the author of that? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Paul effectively argues to Peter, we Jews discovered ourselves to be sinners when we sought the real truth about being justified in Christ or by Jesus Christ. We discovered that too. We discovered that we had missed the mark. That is what sin means or sinners. Just as badly as the Gentile nation, Pete, Paul is saying here. Paul effectively says, now let me ask you a question. When Christ revealed to us our true condition as sinners, does that mean that he made us sinners at that moment? And the answer is, oh, we were always sinners. However, if I try to rebuild the whole structure of justification by the law, if I put myself back under the law, Paul is saying here, after rediscovering the truth of justification in Christ alone, then I really do become a sinner. Because I am perverting the gospel. I really do become one who steps over the line. In other words, Peter, Paul says, if I build again the things that I broke down to be justified by Christ, we acknowledge that we are sinners wholly dependent on God's grace to begin with. Jew and Gentile alike have no other way of being justified before God except for by his grace. Verse number 18, when a person sets about rebuilding something that once that he once acknowledged was useless and fit only for dem demolishing, what is he doing, Paul asks. If that law was useless and we needed Christ, why are you rebuilding that? I say the same thing to a legalistic Christian. Why do you make people hold to your standards and your rituals? Pastor, there's got to be standards. There are. Yeah. But you're not the setter of them. Pastor, are there things that go on in our church that you don't like? I'm sure there are. I won't tell you unless you're in deep sin, and then I will. But you're not living by my rules. You're living by God's rules in your relationship. Amen. Amen. It's not just the clarity that comes through the crucifixion and the cross. It's the confirmation. In verse number 19, he confirms the goal of the law. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. He said the law only taught me one thing. He's going to say this later, that it's our schoolmaster. But here he says, look, the one thing I learned from the law is that I'm dead. There's nothing good in me. not just confirming the goal of the law, it's verse 20 confirming the gracious life we are to live. I'm crucified with Christ. If that verse isn't underlined, it's a wonderful one. It doesn't just plop into the Bible amidst no thought. This is its seat. This is where it is set by God. The idea of being crucified with Christ ends the law. All of the law of Moses was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He was the one atoning sacrifice that paid for all the sins of mankind. All that the law teaches us we are was satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Paid for. The law's day came to an end at Calvary. And that is a good thing for us. Paul is urgently ur pleading with Peter in verse number 20. Peter, we do what we do because we are what we are. Therefore, we need both what Christ did and what Christ is. That's what he's saying in verse 20. We need what he did, and we need what he is in our daily life. What he did was die on the cross. What he is is life in the resurrection for us day by day. Verse 21, we find the confirmation of genuine love. It's important for us to understand what the purpose of the crucifixion was. Paul says that he did not act towards the grace, uh, the grace of God as though it had been rendered null and void. That was that is what legalism will imply. Well, there's no need for the grace. I can just do it myself. At Calvary, God established grace as the means whereby he would deal with fallen man. Just as at Calvary, he rent the temple veil and rendered null and void the law and Judaism, Paul is arguing. In verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, why did Jesus die at all? The answer is we know why he died. So that sin could be paid for he satisfied perfectly the law. Here's the point. There is liberty for us. In closing this evening, if you have personal liberty because of God of the gospel's light, 
entering into your life and hopefully 